Heavenly Father, Isaiah is a book, Father, that challenges not only the content, Father, but the length of the study is a challenge to our patience and to our diligence. All of these things, Father, are, are the things we seek to um, overcome. Our tendency, Father, to start things and not finish, which we all must share at different times. We pray, Father, that you would be good to call us through and into the end of this study as we come down through the last chapters. And you would continue to enlighten us and show us your word in a new way each time. And then we pray, Father, it would strengthen us for our work in ministry. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we're in Isaiah 42 and 43 tonight. So uh, the first section here of Second Isaiah goes all the way to chapter 48. This section is remembering what we've taught before. God the Father as the principal player. His purpose principally is to make a straight path for His Son. This first purpose was mirrored in how John the Baptist and, Isaiah, and later Elisha will come. And his principal concern is in the idol worship that takes place in Israel and its impediment to his son. If idol worship were still a stronghold in the nation of Israel, would they even care that a Messiah had come? You have to first put aside all those distractions before the one that you're looking for takes center stage. So there's always a near-term prophecy and a far-term prophecy to this discussion. There's a near-term way in which he's making paths straight and a long-term way. A near-term concern with idols and a long-term. Chapter 42 begins with God the Father speaking at many times, introducing to Israel his son. Literally, like an introduction, like you might do at a party. God the Father saying to Israel, may I introduce to you your Messiah, who of course in this day is yet to come. So he's going to introduce him. He calls him his servant. That's part of the reason why we, we call the second part of Second Isaiah, the suffering servant part, the part that focuses on Christ. We start talking about him as a servant because of God the Father's introduction of him as such. He is my servant. That next section will be called the suffering servant when you look at it because it talks a lot about how this servant will suffer. That makes sense. This introduction, God the Father introducing his son to Israel, it has a six-part division itself, which we're going to look at tonight. Verses 1 through 4, Isaiah 42. The Father says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. All right, let's stop there because in traditional form, Isaiah puts a lot into a few words. So we, we're going to look at them as he's presented them. There are a number of ways he's described his servant. Let's just quickly list them and let's look at a New Testament reference in each case to show you that in fact these prophecies are reflected in what comes, of, uh, uh, comes to be eventually. For example, the father describes his son first as a servant, as I've said. You can see this confirmed many places. These are never to be the only place. The ones I'm going to give you here are not the only place, but I'm just going to give you one example in each case. So the example here of the New Testament confirming Christ is a servant. The one I chose, John 4, verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus described his own ministry as one of, I'm coming to do what the Father's asked me to do. I'm serving him in that respect. You can see Paul, actually I'll give you two verses here. Paul in Philippians says something even more to that point. Philippians 2.5 and onward. 
Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. There's the servant. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Maybe the quintessential passage on Christ's servanthood. Secondly, in Isaiah 41, we hear that Christ is to be the one the Father upholds. He upholds him. Now, we're going to see this fulfilled at least in two ways, I would argue. First, we know in a simple sense, the Father upheld him in the desert in his time of 40 days of fasting. Mark describes it this way in passing. Mark 1:12. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. And you look at cross-references in Luke, for example, there's some similar things being said there, that through the Spirit, the Father was upholding him in a time of trial. But the ultimate sense of this is probably going to be realized at the resurrection. The ultimate example of the Father upholding the Son is at his own resurrection. He exalts Christ at the resurrection and seats him at his right hand. That's upholding one who has been crushed, obviously. So there's maybe the best way we could understand that meaning. Third, Isaiah says Jesus is the Father's chosen one. Now you see this probably most clearly in Second in First Peter, First Peter chapter two, verse four. Peter calls says this about Christ, or talks about the church actually. He starts by saying, "And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God." You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. What's, the reason I read as far as I did is it's interesting. Peter actually quotes from Isaiah, Isaiah 28. So the New Testament, Peter describes Jesus as that choice stone. Stone is a picture, of course. But he's choice in the fact that God chose him for a purpose. Now, be careful in that. We're not going to the next step here and assuming that God had multiple choices. We're saying that in the way he appointed his son to this purpose, he asked, I don't know how it went on. I don't know if it was a question or if it was a discussion at the coffee table. But at some point, there was the Godhead deciding that the son would have this role in, in the creation and it was appointed to him. He was chosen in that respect. Fourth, Isaiah says, Jesus is the one whom God's soul delights in. That's going to be evidenced in the moment the Spirit descends on Christ and you see God speaking about His Son to all who watch that descending Spirit at the baptism of Christ. Luke records it this way in Luke 3.21. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And He was praying. As He was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon Him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. Fifth, the Father will place His Spirit upon Christ. So that's another feature of this Messiah, that He will have the Father's Spirit upon Him. You see that happening at the baptism. We just described that. Uh, Matthew describes it this way in 3.16. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and He saw the Spirit of God descend as a dove and lighten upon Him. That's also the moment at which Jesus' ministry on earth began under the influence of the Holy Spirit. 
Finally, we're told the servant will bring forth justice to the nations. I don't need to give you a cross-reference there, I think, because uh, we've read many times already, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, as we've studied Isaiah, on the way Jesus establishes a time of perfect justice on earth in the Messianic kingdom. You've heard that many times already. So he is specifically credited by Isaiah here as being the one who will maintain perfect justice, perfect peace among the nations. So verse 1, that's what we just covered. Verse 1 has all of that packed into it. So if you were a Jew wondering as to the nature or the character of the Messiah that God was to send, you just got a pretty good overview there in snippets of this person that God would send as the Messiah. Verse 2 then goes forward to say how he will accomplish those things. He won't accomplish these things through forceful argument. He's not, in other words, to the Jew who was wondering if their Messiah would be a conquering king in the form of a David or a Solomon, verse 2 of this chapter of Isaiah should have put that to rest. It talks about speech. He won't talk in the streets. But the sense of it is more than just to that action. It's more to his entire nature and character, to his style. His style is meekness, quietness, uh, not forceful, not argumentative, not by brute effort. It's, it's one that is not the way you'd expect it to be, given how powerful it's going to become. It's uh, unassuming. He is relying on the Spirit. Ultimately, he relies on the church to carry his message forward. And if you think about his ministry, he would talk one-on-one with people. He would teach in the streets, as the, as the Pharisees say. He would uh, uh, be in people's homes. But he did not conduct a kind of street evangelism which we now in the church are largely expected to conduct. I'm not talking methodology here. I'm just saying in terms of going out. We have that commission. But the commission is one he gave to us, not one he necessarily took on upon himself. His role was to find those who would carry out the commission. He was not here to do it in his own power as a human being living and working on earth. His goal was to establish uh, the basis on which that could take place after he was gone. So it's just the nature of his ministry. It doesn't speak to what he can't do. It's not suggesting he couldn't have done what he wanted to do. It's to suggest God's purpose in why he was sent. But then it also should tell the Jews, anyone who reads this, something about who to look for. Reading this passage, you would have been much more inclined to see Jesus as your Messiah in his day rather than to see or to look for a conquering king. In Matthew, Jesus quotes this prophecy himself. He actually quotes these exact words in Matthew 12:15, but look at the context in which he uses it. Matthew 12:15. Jesus, having heard that some wanted to take him by force into Jerusalem and make him king, you know, basically an, an uprising against Rome, and then they'd put Jesus on the seat of David. Verse 15. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all, and he warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Beloved my servant, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my spirit is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. By the way, if you ever wonder why the Old Testament quotes here are different than the version we have today, it's usually because they're quoting Uh, either the Septuagint, which sometimes is different from our version, or because they quote from memory, they're quoting what was handed down, which may have changed in slight ways over time. That doesn't invalidate it. It doesn't mean that it's not true to the message. It just reflects some of the word differences, that's all. 
But the point here is Jesus himself says in the midst of a conversation around an uprising and a forceful takeover, it's not to be that way because prophecy has dictated who I will be and it will not be that kind of a conqueror. I have a different purpose. Now, moving on from there in Isaiah 42.3. So we've talked about who he is, the manner of his ministry. In verse 3, we talk about the manner of his suffering. In verse 3, it says, A bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish, he will faithfully bring forth justice. The Hebrew uses an idiom there. An idiom is a turn of language or catchphrase or something to describe his ministry. When it says a bruised reed he will not break, a dim wick he will not extinguish, it means he will not come in and crush those who are already oppressed. Somebody who, like a, a wick that's burning dimly, about to go out, he doesn't come in and snuff it out. Who then would be a, derm, a dimly burning wick? Who then will be a, a bruised reed? Who are these that he's not going to crush? What makes something dimly lit or bruised? We're talking about people who have sin, people who are under condemnation, people who have no hope because they, they have not kept the law and are not tr- even trying. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, those who are outside of favor and have no hope in themselves because they're clearly sinners and there's no one who accepts them on that basis. And he's not, gonna, he's not coming to judge them, he's coming to save them. That's the, that's the distinction being made in the idiom. That he doesn't come to crush those who are already in a vulnerable situation, but instead it says he will faithfully bring forth justice. Now that's a reference, a kind of an allusion to his second coming when justice is finally made sure on earth. But for the short term, for the immediate, he's coming to uphold those who are in need of strength and in, uh, in, need, of, in need of justice. Again, it comes on the basis of grace, but he brings it. Another way to say it is he brings hope to the hopeless. So that's the manner of his, and I said earlier the manner of his suffering. I didn't mean to say that. that the manner of his ministry is, is that he comes for that purpose. Verse 4 says that despite the suffering, the Messiah won't be disappointed or discouraged. Now, that's important, particularly after the resurrection, right? Or, or after the crucifixion. To the saints who followed after him in the day he walked the earth and saw him die on the cross, your first thought is, well, that, that didn't go very well. For a minute there, I thought he was coming to do what the Messiah was coming to do, but he got killed. So clearly, I've missed something. He can't be the Messiah. And he himself won't be discouraged by it either. That even though his message is rejected, even though he's beaten, he's scourged, he's put to death, nevertheless, it's all according to plan. And he won't be finished, it says, until he's established justice on earth. That reference there to the coastlands, I'm not sure what that means, except that it could be a way of saying to the ends of the earth. That in other words, uh, all, the, all the earth, the ends of the earth, wait for his law as he rules. Some might say it's Gentiles. Not sure. Now, the Father declares from that point his commissioning. So think of it. He's invited you to understand who his Messiah is. Let me introduce you to my son. Now he's going to appoint a commissioning. Remember Isaiah got his commissioning back in chapter 6? This would be the equivalent, if you will, of Christ. He's not come yet. He's not incarnate. So in some respects, it mirrors what you saw going on in Isaiah's life. He was called into ministry, given a commission, and then his ministry began. Similarly here, the Lord is being introduced, now commissioned. In a few centuries, he comes in reality and begins that ministry. Here's the commissioning, verse 5. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. 
I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. So God the Father declares His authority and His sovereignty here in setting His Son on a mission. Now, look at some of the things He says about His own Son. And I find it particularly intriguing here because it's so tender at points. And it begins to really challenge, at least it did for me, really challenge our understanding of the Trinity. If we're not careful, we gloss it over so much so that the three persons blend too much. It is a mystery. I don't pretend to have it unraveled or or even try. But there's a balance that you have to maintain uh, based on Scripture. On the one hand, they're not three individuals different and distinct so much so that one created the other or is somehow independent of the other. But yet they're not all just one God that happens to appear in three forms because of the kinds of discussions you see like this where the relationship is rich. There's something more there than we understand. For example, he says, I'm going to call you in righteousness, holding your hand, watching over you. You almost get the sense here, at least I did anyway, that that, that the Father is speaking in reassuring terms to the Son, knowing the severity of what He's planning to ask Him to do. Kind of a look, I've got a mission for you. I need you to do this, but don't worry, I'm going to be there with you. I don't want to play it too too simply either. it's, it's It's a mystery. But it is intriguing when you see these kinds of descriptions. Then he says to his son, he will be appointed as a covenant to the people. The word for people is singular there in the Hebrew. So it's not like peoples, like Gentiles. It's the people, which I think means the covenant people of Israel. So he is appointed as a covenant to Israel. What do we mean by that? It's not according to a covenant or in place of a covenant as a covenant. There's at least three ways in which he does this, I believe. And in other words, another way to say this is Jesus in his life fulfills three covenants, fulfills them. First, he fulfills the covenant given to Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled in Christ. And in particular, the fact that he is the seed promised to come through that covenant, which becomes the basis for all that follows it. So when Abraham was given the covenant that included this promise of a seed through whom all nations will be blessed, Paul says that seed was one Christ. This is that seed. He fulfills that that covenant. So he is appointed as essentially as a covenant to Israel on that basis, because until he shows up, that promise to Abraham is still waiting. He comes. That promise now is possible. It's eventually fulfilled in the kingdom, but it takes its it's made possible and its beginning is found in Christ. Secondly, well, maybe I should turn this around because you all should see the pattern. Give me another covenant that Jesus fulfills the Mosaic law. I did not come, he says, to put an end to the law, but to fulfill the law. Another way for the word fulfill is to perfect or to complete the law. He completes the law. In other words, he met in his life and in his death all the terms of the law, such that now our faith in him assigns to us that same perfection. We are, in a sense, credited with having kept the law perfectly through his life. So again, a law that no one on their own could hope to keep It's possible because he can do it in his own life. So he fulfills the Mosaic Covenant. But now, who is under the Mosaic Covenant? Only the Jewish people. So it's to the people. We're going to find our attachment to this where? 
The Abrahamic covenant is to the Jewish people, namely the patriarchs. The law is given to the Jewish nation as a whole. He's fulfilled each of those. There's at least one more covenant he fulfills. The new covenant. We tend to forget that the new covenant is a Jewish covenant given in Jeremiah 31, 31 to the nation of Israel. It was called the new so that those who hear it and know of it would appreciate that it was intended to be something that was better than and replaced, if you will, the old. The, the, the old new juxtaposition was intentional so that we could understand this would do what the other couldn't. But nonetheless, God's law is perfect and holy. Jesus still fulfills it. It's not that God dismisses it. It's just that he fulfills it so that it's put aside. And now a new covenant takes hold. Jesus establishes the new through his own blood. So in his arrival in life and death, all three of these covenants are either and established or completed. So you have some are established and completed. Some are established only, some are completed. But the point is, there is God, he's at work through Jesus in all of these covenants. So that's the first thing we, we hear about him. He says, I've called you in righteousness. I hold your hand, watch over you, appoint you as a covenant. Then he says, and as a light to the nations. Now, how do you think that plays in? Nations here now refers to what? Gentiles. It's, it's goyim. So you have him being the covenant-keeping God for Israel in the three covenants that Israel's been given. There's really principally three covenants that Israel's been given. And again, I'm putting aside some of those secondary covenants that are traceable back to the Abrahamic. So God's relationship with Israel was established on the basis of three covenants. All three are met in Christ. Because of that, an opportunity exists for a light to the nations. And the light to the nations is the opportunity to draw the Gentiles into that new covenant by faith. So he becomes the light Another way to look at light is something that draws attention or guides in darkness. So for the Gentiles, Jesus is a light or he is the, the truth that they're drawn to. Now think about it. The Gentiles had none of those covenants. And even today, you'll find people, even in our own nation for that matter, who know nothing about Christ and nothing about Christianity. Much less the Jewish law, the prophets, the Torah, anything that they had. So without any of those things in their life, they are in utter total darkness with respect to the true living God. But Jesus can come along and break through that darkness and through the gospel bring light to them in all respects. He is the light to those in the nations. Looking further, verse 7, we see more about his ministry and the commissioning. He's going to bring uh, healing to blindness, release from bondage. You can see this simply as healing people like he does in his first coming. But I think that would, only, that would be missing the point if we leave it at that, right? It's a spiritual issue here. The spiritual healing of blindness the spiritual healing of releasing from the, sin, uh, the, the bondage of sin. That's his ultimate purpose. I love verse 8. He says, I am the Lord. This is my name. I will not give my glory to another. Now, what God has done there is he's established that he has in his name the assurance that these are things he will do and do only through his son. The name he uses here is Jehovah, which is a, co- which is a word that means covenant keeping God. So he's made these covenants. He will keep these covenants. He says, after all, that's my name. I'm a covenant keeping God and I will not give my glory to another, meaning there will be no other person or object through whom I will keep these covenants. But the one I have chosen and the one I have appointed, my son alone is the one through whom I will show my name, my covenant keeping quality, my covenant keeping character. And I won't do it to idols. Here's that idol issue showing up again in the text. Idols are not part of the plan. So if the father declares he won't share his glory with another, as he does here, then Jesus can't be another. 
God says, I'm not going to share my glory with another, and he says specifically, not with idols, then Jesus, by definition, can't be another. He has to be God himself. So that points us back to this relationship that's complex. On the one hand, I talk, God talks to him tenderly, says, I'll take care of you and I'll uphold you and so on. But on the other hand, he says, I'm my name. I'm the covenant-keeping God. I will do these things. I won't share my glory with another. Well, that must mean that this Messiah is, in fact, God himself. In verse 9, then, we see another one of these strange moments where Isaiah is recording God's words as if we were already living in the future, looking backward. But that where you're looking backward to is where Isaiah is actually at as he writes these words. So it's like he's moved forward and then starts talking about himself in the past tense, in the backward-looking sense. He says, Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. So from the perspective of Isaiah, what what he's saying is, God says, the former things have already come to pass. What former things is he talking about here? He's talking about all the prophecies that have been given in Isaiah up through, all the way through 1st Isaiah. So all of what 1st Isaiah wrote about, Assyria, all that was going to happen to the nation of Israel with Assyria, with Hezekiah, and all of that, all of that was going to, to be considered past tense history by the time we move forward to Babylon. So he's still writing this a hundred years or so before Babylon shows up. But he says it as if he's already there, looking back, saying, all those former things have passed. Now, some new things are about to happen. That's the confusing part about understanding Isaiah a little bit. So he says new prophecies are about to be given in Second Isaiah concerning stuff that happens after or in conjunction with Babylon. Talking as if he's already there. Now, remember what he does? He has a near-term prophecy and a far-term prophecy. Near-term with in, in Second Isaiah, near term means with respect to what nation and their activities. Babylon. What they do to Israel, how they take them captive, or how they return from that captivity. That's 70 years of captivity. That's, that's all about 150 years from when Isaiah is writing, but he's speaking as if he's already there now, talking about it. That's the near term prophecy. What's the far term prophecy of Second Isaiah? Still very similar. It's the Babylon of tribulation. That's one of the ways, by the way, we can be certain or should be certain that the Babylon that's spoken of in chapters, say, 17 and 18 of Revelation is not euphemistic. It is a country, a nation or a world government of some form that takes place in the last days that has real authority and persecutes Israel. The the parallels don't make sense if that's not true. And it's the same parallels he applied with Assyria, right, in the first in first Isaiah. So in second Isaiah, he's still taking that same approach. So we we get reinforcement here for interpreting Revelation literally on that, in that sense. There is a Babylon of some sort in the last days, whether it's literally the one we see today on the map in Iraq or simply some other regional place that takes the name Babylon in that last day, or we don't know. That, that's not so much the key issue. The issue is it's centered in that part of the world, the Middle East, and it's an enemy of Israel, and it's a seat of power for the world. Now, out of chapter 42, verse 9, Isaiah, speaking as God, says, those former things, they've happened. So much for them. Now, let me share with you some new things that are going to happen to Israel. These new things will take the form of near-term and far-term on Babylon. Which one do you think he does first? Well, because Isaiah loves to confuse you, he's going to do the far-term one first. So we start by talking about far-term tribulation Babylon. And so these are the new prophecies he wants uh, Israel to hear. Before he even does that, he says a short song of praise here. So a short song of praise for God the Father in light of his plan to bring the Chosen One followed by a prophecy. Look at verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song. 
Sing His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and those who dwell on them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices, the settlements where Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse His zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, He will cry a war cry. He will prevail against His enemies. Uh, it's a song that stands on its own proclaiming, I think, Jesus' return in that second coming in His future glory. What's notable about this song, though, is it sets your mind on that future day, doesn't it? Even in the midst of adding a little song, Isaiah sets you up for understanding the next set of verses because you're immediately drawn to this time when he comes forth as a warrior and he prevails against his enemies. That's the vision of his second coming. So it draws our mind to that time frame, which is a nice segue into what he does next. Now, we look at the far-term prophecy, verse 14. Look at this. This is interesting. Look, look at God speaking here. I have kept silent for a long time. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now, like a woman in labor, I will groan. I will both gasp and pant. Now, remember, he's speaking to Israel. I will lay waste the mountains and the hills and wither all their vegetation. I will make the rivers into coastlands and dry up the ponds. I will lead the blind by a way they do not know. In paths they do not know, I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them and rugged places into plains. These are the things I will do, and I will not leave them undone. They will be turned back and be utterly put to shame who trust in idols, who say to molten images, you are gods. Now, he's speaking to Israel. Do you understand what he means then when he says, I have kept silent for a long time? There's been no additional revelation to them but the Messiah, right? There was a cutting off of God's revelation to the Jews from that point in his ministry on earth. So you could say for over 2,000 years, he's kept silent to the nation of Israel. They are not hearing from Christ. Now, on an individual basis, a certain Jew, a man, a woman here and there might come to the Lord as God permits. And that's the remnant coming to know their Lord. And they hear him. Yes. But as a nation, as a whole, they, they haven't heard from him for a long time, which has given rise to numbers of different movements in Israel. The secular movement where they've all but walked away from a true following of any faith. They think of it more as a political or cultural affiliation to very liberal forms of Judaism. In other words, without God there directing and talking to them, they've just wandered off into all kinds of corners, as you would expect. So he says, I've been silent for a long time and I've restrained myself. You get a sense there that this isn't God just off on a vacation. It's an active effort on his part to hold back from his beloved nation, the nation of Israel, but for a good purpose, obviously. And then at the start of tribulation is going to be the time when he will begin to speak to them again. That tells you something about the purpose of tribulation in a sense. It's as if you had something to say to someone and you have held your mouth shut for a long, long time, wishing you could say something. And then finally, when the moment comes and it's your turn to speak, what do you do? It's just, right? Because you've been holding back. I get the sense of that. He says, now like a woman in labor, I will groan. I will both gasp and pant. It's a sense of now when I'm ready to reveal myself, watch out. Well, that's a perfect comparison to what comes in tribulation. You talk about revelation in, in, in terms of effort and force and degree. Tribulation is just the ultimate of, of communication, if that's what you want to call it. That's what he promises to do. And he summarizes the devastation on the earth that, the, that God will bring. Up until verse 16, he says, I will lead the blind of Israel into the light, which I think, in my opinion, that's a reference to the remnant of tribulation being led into safety or into spiritual awareness, into faith during those days. 
beginning with 144,000. But in contrast to the remnant, he ends by saying there'll be judgment against those who continue to follow idols. So remember, idols are the focus. He wants to remove idols because they're an obstacle to Israel's acceptance of their Messiah. In the near-term sense, which we're going to talk about here in a minute, he does that through their captivity in Babylon. In the long-term sense, though, he's doing that here through the complete and utter destruction of idols the world over, which is culminated in Christ's return when he destroys anyone who is not aligned with him. So the world enters into the millennial kingdom free of any idol worship anywhere in the world. There's but one name on earth, one king, all know who he is and all follow uh, uh, all are under his authority. Whether they know him as truth, in truth or not, doesn't matter. They all follow him in authority. There is no one to compete for him, with him in authority. So idol worship the world over is dealt with in the last day. Now, in the near-term fulfillment, which is in uh, verse 18, beginning now in verse 18, the near-term fulfillment has the same basic purpose on a smaller scale. Let's get rid of idol worship in the nation of Israel so that when their Lord arrives here in a few centuries, he won't be contending with a nation of Baal worshippers which he wasn't. So verse 18, Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or so deaf as my messenger whom I send? Or who is so blind as he that is at peace with me, or so blind as the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things, but you do not observe them. Your ears are open, but none hears. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to make the law great and glorious, but this is a people plundered and despoiled, all of them are trapped in caves or are hidden away in prisons. They've become a prey with none to deliver them and a spoil with none to say, give them back. So now we're looking at the near future prophecy concerning Babylon's invasion of Israel. Keep in mind, Isaiah is writing this to a group of people who are still 150 years or so, 100 years from this event. Don't even know about it. Don't know it's coming. And he's talking as if he's already there looking at it as it occurs. He calls to Israel. Now, notice as he starts there, he says, uh, you're blind and you're deaf. That we understand. That's a way of saying they don't get the truth. They're not following the true God. But then in verse 19, he's calling Israel now the servant. Israel is the servant. Don't get confused because we know Jesus was called the servant earlier. Here we're talking about Israel. He says, you are my servant. But here's the irony. You're the one who knows the word because I've given it to you through the prophets. You have the law. But no one in the world is more blind than you are. And yet you're my servant. No one is as deaf as you are, and yet you're the one who's supposed to be speaking to the world. The nation of Israel is supposed to be the light to the world and the voice to the world for who God was, and they're the most deaf and blind of all of them. That was his way of summarizing the irony. They were also the nation who was at peace with him through the covenants. And they are the ones who are supposed to be serving him, and yet they're, they're blind to who he is and they aren't following him. So in verse 20, he says, The servant has seen many things but didn't observe that word for observe in, in Hebrew is shamar. It means gatekeeper, literally. So what he's saying there is the one who's supposed to keep watch and be ready to understand what's coming. I think it's meant in the context of the Messiah, ultimately. But the one who's supposed to be attentively watching for God's plan to play out through their nation is blind to it all, not even looking for it. They've stopped watching and they're ignorant. Their ears are stopped. They're not listening. And he says, I made a law that's great, a law of righteousness, it's glorious, but because of your disobedience to him, but to it, I'm going to declare judgment upon you and you're going to find yourselves hiding in caves and in prisons and hoping for someone to rescue you and no one's going to rescue you. That's a perfect description of Babylon's captivity. They came, took them away, as, as Scripture tells us, with hooks in their noses and took them up to Babylon in captivity 
And that's the punishment for them not hearing, not watching, not heeding. So that's what he's promising to them. Now you have to remember that people are a hundred and something years from this and they're already hearing that this is going to happen to them. Verse 23. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will give heed and listen thereafter? Who gave Jacob up for spoil and Israel to plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned and in whose ways they were not willing to walk and whose law they did not obey? So he poured out on them the heat of his anger and the fierceness of battle and it set him af- and set him aflame all around. Yet he did not recognize it and it burned him, but he paid no attention. So because they've forsaken the law, here's what he will do. He'll bring this, this uh, judgment against them. You notice there's a comparison in verse 24, right? Who gave Jacob up for the spoil and Israel to the plunderers? Here's a hint. You don't want to be compared to Israel. Israel was the northern kingdom, right? This is being written, remember, it's being written as if you're in the future looking back when the Assyrians had already come and taken Israel. To say that what I did to Israel I'm prepared to do to Judah, that's not a good comparison. Not that they necessarily could have understood it when it was written, but the future certainly could. So now, at the end of chapter 42, he is set about the principle that because they have idols and because they don't pay attention to his words and his law, judgment is coming, and it's coming in a very specific way. Going to prison, going into captivity, no one to save you. He hasn't mentioned Babylon yet. That comes up. Now, in 43, we're going to go into 43 now, there's a bit of a turn at the beginning, a reverse in sentiment. He begins to speak about how he's going to deliver them from Babylon. Now, what's interesting about this is he hasn't really talked about the Babylonian captivity in detail. He's alluded to the necessity of it and the coming fact of it, skipped over the details of how it will happen. Now he's jumping to the discussion about afterward how I'm going to call you back. Because I think God wants to make clear he's not doing this for their destruction. So he gives them some hope even though it's going to happen. So in verse 1 of chapter 43... He says, but now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. So this entire passage begins a a little series here in chapter 43 of encouragement, but it's with respect to how he will bring them back from judgment or from captivity. Did you recognize anything in those first few verses that strike you as similar to things we studied in Ruth? Maybe, maybe not. I'm thinking here specifically of the kinsman-redeemer principle of Scripture. Israel will find herself in bondage to Babylon under law for the sins that they've committed under the law, and God is going to provide a redemption as kinsman-redeemer. And in these verses, he just described him fulfilling the kinsman-redeemer responsibilities. Look at the elements here. The way the kinsman-redeemer principle of the law was established originally is God gave it to the nation of Israel. If someone in Israel had found themselves in enough debt that they couldn't get out from under that debt or meet the obligations of the debt, 
They could sell themselves into slavery. They could go to the person who owed the debt and say, I will work for you in bondage, a, slave, a bond servant, basically, and pay off my debt in slavery or in, in servant, servitude. Uh, now, they may be able to work long enough to pay off the debt and get out from underneath that servitude, but they may not. In many cases, they couldn't. So if they were still in slavery and not able to free themselves from that slavery on their own, by their own effort, by their own work, then it was possible for someone who was a near relative to redeem them. And the kinsmen, we call them, could redeem this person out of slavery. There were three requirements in the law for someone to be a kinsman redeemer. First, they had to be a close relative. Secondly, they had to pay the full price. They had to pay the debt that was holding this person in slavery. That's the reason why they couldn't get out. And then third, they had to be willing to pay the price because they were not obligated to. There was nothing in the law that said they must do it, so they had to be able to and willing to. God established all of these conditions in the law, and he meets them all here in Isaiah. For example, with respect to the relative, being a close relative, he begins by saying, that I am the one, he says, I am the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, the one who formed you. That, in a sense, makes him the closest possible relative to Jacob, the nation. Remember, we're not talking about a human being here. We're talking about an entity. How did the nation of Israel come into be? God created them in the sense that he called Abraham and established through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob this nation. So that makes him, if you will, a relative. You could even argue that he is the husband from how he describes her as his wife, right? So God is himself... The relative, he establishes that or reminds us of that. Uh, in verse 1, he says, He will also be the one to redeem Israel from her bondage under the law. Verse 2, he says, He will rescue her, uh, rescue her from her trials. In other words, he is showing willingness. He's stating, in a matter of fact, that he will do it. Not, not, even, not just that he's willing, but that he will. Then in verse 3, God announces the price he will pay for Israel. He is, says he is willing to sacrifice entire nations of people, bringing them to destruction in the course of his plan, if necessary or as necessary, to rescue Israel. That's one way. That's not the only way, but that's one way he's paying uh, the, the, the penalty or the price. How does God actually do this? What does he mean when he says he's going to sacrifice people or nations? Well, for example, think back to the ways he's accomplished these very things in the course of bringing up Israel properly. When it was time to move Israel out of their land because they were beginning to marry Canaanites, thinking specifically of Judah, marrying uh, uh, Canaanite women, God's plan to save Israel from itself was to take them entirely out of the nation, um, out, of the, out, of, out of Canaan, out of the land in which they dwelt at the time with all these pagan nations, and bring them to a place where they would be completely isolated, cut off from the opportunity to intermarry with any other nation, isolated for a period of time such that when he was ready, they would be that much stronger and, uh, if you will, bonded in a way that when he was ready, he could draw them back into the land without fear that they would intermarry with the other nations. Do you remember how he did that? Through Joseph. He put them through famine and through Joseph, he moved the entire people of Israel into Goshen and put them in Egypt, which was a nation that absolutely abhorred sheep herders. And that's why they were happy to let them have Goshen. It was sort of a backwater, a little swamp land within, Israel, within uh, Egypt. They stayed there until they became slaves, which only made their isolation even more so, of course, at that point. So for 200 and something years, they had stayed in uh, Egypt as a separate nation group, unable to intermarry, unable to, to assimilate, cut off from 
Canaan. And as God tells Abraham before all this happens, until the iniquity of the Amorites is complete, until I have reached the point where I'm ready for you to return into that land. So how does he remove them when the time comes? How does he move them from Egypt back? He, he in a sense, destroys Egypt. That's the, and people along with it, right? That's the sense of what he says here where I have given Egypt as your ransom. Meaning, I have been prepared at times to take countries that I needed to destroy, as it were, for your sake and put them in, and done that to them because you're the one who matters to me. I've chosen you above these other nations and so I will take that into account when I plan what I will do with you. That's one way in which he's willing to pay the price. But the ultimate way, of course, the one we would expect for him to re- refer to comes up in verse 3, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. It's illusion. It's not spelled out. But the point is, He Himself, God Himself, will be the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. He is the one who, through His death, pays the ultimate price, the, way that, the, the price that must be paid to free them from sin. So, God pays the price for Israel's sin in the person of Jesus on the cross. So, He is the relative, He is willing, and He is able to pay the price necessary to redeem Israel from bondage. That rescue, he says, will happen in verses 5 and 6. That rescue will happen first by calling them back, he says, from the east, from the west, from the south, from the north, regathering them. There is, in a sense, a double reference here as well. There is a regathering in the very fact that they come back out of Babylon. Then there's a regathering in the last days, which we see now. Both the near and the far term have that same parallel. Verse 8, bring out the people who are blind, even though they have eyes and the deaf, even though they have ears. All the nations have gathered together so that the peoples may be assembled. Who among them can declare this and proclaim to us the former things? Let them present their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me. And I understand and, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am He, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? So God has moved from the near-term promise that I am your Redeemer, I will... I will bring you out of bondage. He ended that earlier passage with a reference to the regathering. That tends to put our mind in the future again, to the present day today. Then in verses 8 through 13, he asks the question, why does God initiate the regathering of Israel? Verse 9 and onward, he describes the purpose. So that they might witness to God's glory, declaring what was been spoken all along is true. In other words, what was his complaint with them at the beginning earlier? Who's more blind than my own servant? My own witness to the nations is doing nothing. So what's he going to do in the last days? Isn't it interesting that Israel wasn't willing to be the light and to be the witness under ideal circumstances? He was making them the chief nation within their day. Solomon's empire was great. David's empire was great. They had plenty of power and might. They could subdue almost any nation they went against. God was enriching and blessing them. They had the prophets. They had the law. All of the circumstances, if you will, were set up perfectly for them to be the light that they should be. And what did they do? They idol worshipped. So, instead, God says, when I'm ready to bring you out of this bondage, you're going to come first into a regathering, followed by a period of time in which you will have been called out from the nations 
and will be a pariah such that none of them will have anything to do with you. And you will become a beacon during a time of great trial and great persecution called the tribulation. So if you will not be a witness and a light to me when things are going well, I will make you a witness and a light to me in a time of great persecution and trial. One way or the other, though, you will stand in the world as a light to me as I have intended you to be. That's my sense of what he's saying to them here. And that regathering for their own benefit ultimately arrives at their knowledge that Christ was truly their Savior and their own declaration that there is no God besides God. So though they are not idol worshippers as a nation any longer, they come to the ultimate understanding of who the true God is. It's one thing to not idol worship, but it's another thing altogether to know who the true God is. They move from idol worship to not following God as an initial stage. Now they're going to move from that stage to a true appreciation of who he is. They graduate to the fullest extent, if you will. Remember, the principal purpose that the Father has in this section of First Isaiah is to set the stage for his son's arrival and later for his return. And in both cases, by putting Israel in a proper state of mind and heart without idols. The first one does not arrive at them coming to faith. The second one will. Verse 14, Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, For your sake I have sent to Babylon and will bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, into the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty man. They will lie down together and not rise again. They have been quenched and extinguished like a wick. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches. Because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert and give drink to my chosen people. The people who I formed for myself will declare my praise. And remember the back and forth. Near, far, near, far. Started near. Moved to far with the regathering comments and the fact that he was going to eventually turn them back to him in a period of devastation on the world. Now he's back to near. Now he's back to near. He's blending the two because they both fulfill similar purposes under similar conditions, just at different points in time to different ends. Right? In, in different ends, I only mean in terms of degree. The one he does first is really a foreshadowing of the one he'll do later in fullness when Christ returns. Okay? That's been a pattern we've seen many times in this book. So, turning to the near future prophecy, the one about Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, he's moved himself forward in time again, so he speaks in the past tense about this future event. God promises to bring them back from Babylon. So that's what he's saying there in, verses, in verse 4. He promises to bring them back. He's promising to rescue them. Uh, in 536 B.C., the Medo-Persian Empire attacked Babylon while Babylon still had Israel in captivity in Mesopotamia, basically. When the Medo-Persians attacked, the Babylonians escaped on ships down the Euphrates and fled in that way. That's what you see referenced in verse 14. Here is Isaiah predicting a future event about 150 years before it took place with in, in eerie accuracy. I mean, there would have been no way to understand this. At the time he wrote this, no one had yet been able to, to navigate the Euphrates in large ships. That was still an, an unknown ability because there was, it was not a waterway that was well, that was deep in most places. It was a very tricky thing to know how to move a large ship down the Euphrates and not get stuck. But the Chaldeans... Uh, I mean, the, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, they figured it out. But they didn't figure it out 
when Isaiah wrote this. They figured it out in the future. And so he's predicting something that would have been very hard to know without having God's insight, of course. So in verse 16, he compares this coming rescue from Babylon to rescues that he has done for the nation of Israel in the past. Making the point that I have always been there rescuing you from these bondages I've put you in because I've never been intending to destroy you through them. So can you see the examples? Do you see them for yourself now in verse 16? He says, I made a path through water for you. Well, we know what that's a reference to, I hope, right? The red, red Sea, okay? And then he describes it. He says, he brought forth chariot and mighty men who were made to lie down together under the water, in other words, never to get up again. Extinguished like a wick. That's a reference to Charlton Heston movie, okay? He says, don't ponder or rest on these things, though. I love this verse. Boy, there's a lot of application out of this one, which we don't have time for, but you could do it for your own, I hope. In other words, it's interesting, it's useful to understand what God's done for them, uh, but don't ponder it too much. There's a sense here of, and Israel does this a lot today, right? They glory in their past. They glory in what God's in the past. Well, that's good. He's not dismissing it. He himself mentioned it. But he's saying, okay, move on. There's more coming. There's stuff in the future. I think Christians have a similar opportunity to remember and understand the past, but to keep forward looking in terms of, of God's continued work. He's the God of the Old Testament. He's the God of Acts. He's the God of today. And there's plenty of work he's doing in our lives today if we would see it from that point of view. That's sort of a shorthand uh, or a shortcut way to application. But anyway, he makes the point to them. Don't look on the old things. Don't think about those miracles. Focus on the ones I'm about to do. As the Jews will return from Babylon to Jerusalem, he's going to do more miracles for them. These verses are our equivalent for the exodus out of Babylon to what we get in the book of Exodus from the story of them leaving Egypt. In other words, we have the whole book of Exodus telling us about manna and about water from a rock and about all these miracles he does along the way. This is our equivalent. It's just not very long. He says, and this is our evidence that it took place, he says he's going to provide a highway for them. Think about it. They had to walk hundreds of miles from Babylon to Israel, back to Jerusalem, not having been there in 70 years, so the people who were making the trip were probably never even there. How did they know where to go and how to get there? In the desert. Apparently, God made supernaturally some highway evident to them or pointed them on it or put them on it. Somehow he made that clear. He provided water for them, we're told, while they were in the desert, rivers in the desert, supernaturally kept them alive in a way that you would have had to have seen happen if they're going to make a long trip through the desert and survive. He says the water will be such that it will even benefit the wild animals that are in the desert such that they will glorify him as well. And you think about it, if it is truly a miraculous kind of provision you would have had a lot of animals in the midst of that saying, hey, we've never seen the water like this before, right? It would have been a surprise to them as well. And ultimately, it will cause his people to praise his name. The story of where this is all fulfilled is found in Ezra. If you go read Ezra, you see this exact thing. You see the, the description of them leaving, coming to the land, finding uh, what God has provided for them there and praising his name. Finally, verses 22 through 28. He says, Yet you have not called on me, O Jacob, but you have become weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought to me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have brought me not sweet cane with money, nor have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices. Rather, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue our case together. State your case that you may be proved right. Your first forefathers sinned and your spokesmen have transgressed against me. 
So I will pollute the princes of the sanctuary and I will consign Jacob to the ban and Israel to revilement. For the sake of time, let me summarize these briefly and we'll end. God reminds Israel of their sins under the covenant. So I'm going to free you, going to bring you back, but understand one thing. You have sinned against the covenants. You have a debt to me, but I'm going to rescue you. And look on the basis of what? On verse 25, what is the basis of his willingness to rescue them from their sin for his own sake? This is grace. He's saying grace will be the measure of the means by which I will present or provide this rescue. And then he says, verse 26, the way it's stated here is put in remembrance, let us argue our case together. What he's really saying is, remind me of anything you've done to merit my rescue. Remind me, tell me, what is it again you've done that warrants me doing these things for you? And he says that you may be proved right or righteous, in other words, that you may be shown to be worth it. And the answer is nothing. I mean, it's a rhetorical question for that reason. He says in verse 25, I'm doing it for my own sake, entirely for my own sake. And then he goes further to saying, if you think I'm, it's just you who have been a problem for me, he says, your first forefather sinned. Who is their first forefather? You, you could probably name several names. So some would say Abraham. I think it's either Abraham or Jacob, depending on where you call the first forefather for Israel. Either one could be equally right. His point is, even the very first of you all sinned, and goes from that point forward, your spokesmen have transgressed. Who is Israel's spokesman? The prophets, the kings, the priests, the judges, you name them, right? Anyone who has taken the role of leader in that nation has been equally guilty. The point is obvious, right? If your first forefathers sinned, if all your representatives sinned, you're no better than any of them. You've all sinned. The only reason you're getting this is grace. That's the basis for what I'm doing. It's grace. To anyone who would say that the Old Testament speaks to something different than the New Testament, doesn't understand the Old Testament. It's always been grace. It's always been by faith. He's always been doing the same thing. It's all through Israel because that is the nation through whom he has chosen to work, but it's to our benefit as well. Father, thank you, Lord, as well for the time tonight in the study. Thank you for the chance to pray and remind ourselves of those in this church and in this fellowship and study who, who desire our prayer and who we remember fondly or, or continue to lift up as they heal. And thank you, Father, that we can be reminded of grace, of the unmerited favor that you have made available to your Son. Father, I pray that our lives and our words would preach that same message to all we would meet. In Jesus' name, amen.